So yesterday, big news, of course, Pfizer getting the full FDA gold approval for the vaccine. So that should convince everybody who hasn't been vaccinated yet that it's completely safe, right? So that's uh, the message that was actually sent out yesterday, of course, even uh, President Biden kind of acknowledging that saying, you know, now it's time for everybody to get vaccinated. Of course, uh, the military now mandating the vaccine as well. So um, later this year, both Johnson and Johnson and Moderna are also hoping to get the full FDA approval for the vaccine. And, you know, of course, we're talking about something where, you know, the the issue is is still developing here. And a lot of things are, are going to go on for the next, you know, really few years as we continue to get more variants of the virus. Uh, again, you know, this is what we talked about a year and a half ago when this first started. We said the problem with viruses is that when you create a vaccine for it, it mutates um, very much like influenza A. You know, there's a very, there's many different variants of the flu virus. And when you get your flu shot on an annual basis, it only covers a few. And that's why even if you get a flu shot, you may still get sick. And this is, this is the problem with COVID. And this is something we're just gonna have to learn to live with as we go forward. Um, as and, and as we get past this, right, and kind of get the economy back on. But speaking of the economy, that's the interesting thing. So last year we did five trillion dollars worth of stimulus coming in from the government. Now this was supposed to bail out small businesses and and keep people employed, and you know get the economy, you know support the economy until we get back on track. Of course, we had this huge surge in economic growth in the third quarter. Uh, not surprising when you put 20% of the economy into the economy all at one time and, and form, particularly in the form of just uh, direct checks to households. As we said yesterday, imagine that people actually went out and spent the money. Um, the problem now, though, is that you're now getting the reversion back to norms. We had these big deviations from long term kind of trends in markets, whether it's retail sales, employment or um, you know, personal consumption expenditures had these big deviations. So we had these very big economic numbers. Um, as we said in quarter two, at the beginning of, of, of the second quarter, we said that by the time we got the actual GDP report, it was going to be far weaker than what analysts were expecting. By the time we got there, it was actually 50% lower than where the initial estimates were. Quarter three is shaping up to be very, very much the same way. Already, the, the third quarter GDP estimates are coming down rather sharply. Manufacturing has peaked, service spending has peaked, and not surprising because now what's happening is all of that dollars that we put into the economy, they're coming out. And so activity is now returning to norms. And this is the one thing that we talked about a lot. We wrote some articles on this last year called the second derivative effect. And this is the fact that when you start measuring things on a year-over-year -year basis, they, they start to revert very quickly back to their long-term means. And this is what's happening now. Now, this has implications for the financial markets because all of this rally in the market that we had over the last year, this 100% advance, it got Wall Street very excited. And they have now ratcheted up earnings estimates to the moon going out over the next couple of years, expecting that this current trend of economic growth is somehow natural and normal, even though it's all, all driven by stimulus, which is now leaving the system. So now what we're going to see is that we're seeing Q3 economic growth slowing down. Q4 will slow down some more. Earnings estimates are going to have to come down. This is going to make valuations in the markets as well as the current price of the market very hard to maintain 
at these levels. Now, as we talked about yesterday in, in, our, uh, in our post yesterday morning and talked about it the last couple of weeks, we've had a very long stretch in the market with very low volatility. Again, something that we haven't seen since really 2017. And as always, low volatility tends to lead to high volatility at some point. But importantly, as we've been talking about, you know, these, these, these little dips that we have coming off the 50-day moving average, and of course, the most recent little dip got bought at the 40-day, we get a little spike in volume during the sell-off. And then as soon as the sell-off is over, there's a few buyers that show up to kind of buy the market, but the market has got such a lack of liquidity right now that it takes very little volume to actually move prices higher. And if you actually take a look at a, at a volume chart on the S&P 500 going back over the last several corrections, actually going back to, you know, even just to May, what you see here are these repeated levels of little spikes in volatility that um, that equate to the sell-off in the market. So when the market sells off, you get a big spike in, volati uh, a spike in vol volatility and volume um, as people are, are dumping stocks into the markets. But when that little brief sell-off is over, in just a matter of a couple of days, and, and investors start to kind of buy the dips, volume very quickly evaporates, and there is no real volume in the markets. And that's what we're seeing again this time. This is very normal over the course of the last few months because it's a market that has very little liquidity in it. And here's the big risk of a lack of liquidity, and we've talked about this before, is that for every buyer in the market, there has to be a seller. The problem here is, is that as markets are going up, nobody wants to sell, right? So buyers have to keep paying up higher and higher prices in order to buy something in the markets to get money allocated. And that's why prices are moving up on very low volume because it takes very few buyers to actually move prices up because there's nobody willing to sell. The problem becomes on the other side of the coin when a group of when a large group of the market decides, hey, I'm going to sell for whatever reason, right? Uh, some type of exogenous event, the Fed tapers, the Fed does something unexpected, whatever it is that that gets people angst to sell. All of a sudden, there are no buyers. The buyers wind up at much lower levels, and this is how the market is going to actually fall eventually. It'll be a very fast decline back to the 200-day moving average or lower because what will happen is there'll be a gap that opens up in the markets between the current price of the market and the price that other buyers are willing to buy. So when sellers show up in force, the market will decline rather rapidly because of this lack of liquidity in the market. There's simply just nobody willing to sell at this point. So buyers are having to step up, but there's not that many buyers out there. Most people are just kind of holding things in their portfolios at the moment, us included, because we, we need to participate in this rally in the markets. But we realize that there is a growing risk here of a downside pop at some point. You've had a very long period of where we haven't had a retest of, of, of the lows of two months ago, we haven't seen that type of lack of volatility for years. And, and again, that's just something that doesn't last forever. And whatever causes it, and this is the big risk here, whatever causes the, the, the pop in the market, whatever opens up that exit in the market to where people wanna leave the theater, it's going to be very crowded at that exit very quickly. And so again, this is one of those things that eventually what you're gonna to have to do is, is pick a point in time before it happens to start to quietly leave the theater before somebody yells fire. Whenever that is, I don't know, but 
again, this is just the thing you need to watch for the most. This lack of liquidity is a real risk for the overall market. So we're going to come back and talk about pet rocks. Don't go away. You may not remember, but back in the 1970s, there was a novelty item that was going around for a while called a pet rock. Um, it actually came in a little carrier with air holes in it so it wouldn't suffocate. <laughs> had, a, had a little, uh, you know, like a, a, a paper bed in there that the rock could, you know, sit on so it was comfortable. It even had a care and feeding training book of your pet rock because it's important to take care of your pet rock. You know, it's been around for a couple of billion years. It's important to take care of it so it doesn't die, right? <laughs> so... But this was a thing. Somebody invented that. And this is the great thing about, you know, people always talk about how, you know, capitalism sucks and, you know, capitalism broken. And here's somebody that took, took, <laughs> took advantage of the capitalist system to sell probably one of the most stupid ideas ever. And people bought this stuff like crazy. I mean, this was a huge deal. My parents bought me one for Christmas. Okay. I mean, it was a thing. And they weren't cheap, as I recall. They, yeah, they weren't cheap, but they were cheaper than an iPhone. But they were so. rock. <laughs> but see, we didn't have, you know, video games and things back then. We played with sticks and rocks and balls. I mean, you know, the outside was a thing. Uh, anyway, so why am I bringing this up? Well, not surprisingly, in the markets today, and this is what happens when we have a whole lot of uh, speculation in the markets, a digital version of a pet rock just sold. A, this is a non-fungible token. <laughs> just sold for over $100,000. It's paid for in Ethereum, but $100,000 worth. For a digital version of a pet rock that looks like somebody literally painted a rock on a green, on a gray screen and sold it. I mean, so just imagine. And now he made numerous versions of this pet rock, but you have to really look at them to tell that they're different because they have diff different shadings of gray. They're all gray, right? So you have to really kind of identify that you've got a unique version of this pet rock for $100,000. And this just kind of really goes to show us where we are in the markets today. You know, we talk about the markets being rich, um, overvalued. And what happens when you get into these phases of the markets where there's a tremendous amount of speculation and, and you know, valuation, dis a disregard of valuations for the markets you find these kind of things happen, right? You see people paying, you know, astronomical amounts of money for digital versions of pet rocks and art and cars and, you know, luxury yachts, those type of things, right? It's just where we are in the markets. And Peter Atwater, I, when I originally posted this, Peter Atwater had tweeted me back. He says, yeah, the, the, the craze lasted from September of 1975 and sales peaked in the Christmas season, tanking in 1976. And he's right. It, it lasted. The, the craze was very short in nature for pet rocks. Not surprising. 
because it was stupid. <laughs> but somebody, thank God to capitalism, made a lot of money off of it. Good for you. There's some, there's some guy in a beach somewhere, and there's people walking up to him and going, Hey, how did you make all your money? I sold rocks. I'm only jealous because I didn't think of it. <laughs> but let's get into some signs of a rich market. That's really kind of what we are today. You know, pre, you know valuations, I, I want to be really clear about this because this is the first thing that happens when you talk about valuations. People go, yeah, valuations have been high for a long time. Yes, valuations are a terrible market timing indicator. They tell you everything you need to know about, about psychology of the markets and where you are in the cycle. Um, John Hussman, who takes a lot of grief because he's been very bearish for a very long time, uh, does some great work on valuations. And he recently put out a chart showing the ratio of non-financial market capitalization. So this is the market cap of non-financial stocks, so no banks, to the actual gross value added um, that they provide. And... Now, this is probably the most reliable valuation measure in history because of its very high correlation to what is happening with underlying future returns. And this is one of the things that we want to continue to kind of focus on is this relationship to forward returns. Because when you take a look at these current valuation levels, which are at the highest level ever on record, right? So you take, no, no matter how you kind of look at it in terms of, you know, kind of the markets, your money, et cetera, and you take a look at valuations, what do valuations mean? It means that if I pay this value for something today, what's it going to be worth to me in a year, two years, five years, or 10 years? Take Pet Rocks, for example, right? If you bought it in September of 1975, it had value until 1976, and then it didn't because people no longer wanted to buy it. It's the same thing with the financial markets. Valuations tell you a lot about the exuberance in markets, about what people are willing to pay for something. And currently, right now, whether you look at market cap to GDP, price to sales, these are all at record levels, right? People are paying more today for ownership in a company than at any other point in history. When you compare that to what forward returns are over time, there is a very high cor correlation between, guess what? If you overpay for something today, your future return on it, the future value of it, is going to be lower. The easiest way to, to really explain this is to think about something that you buy on a regular basis. And there's a good example of this right now. Used cars are a great example of this. Because there's a shortage in used cars, people are panicking to think that they can't buy a car anymore. So they're running out and they're overpaying for a used car. So in some cases, they're paying more for a used car than actually the new version of that same car actually cost. Now, think about the stupidity of that. But they can't get it, so it's a big panic, right? I can't get a car. I got to go buy one. And this is just the way human psychology works. If we think we can't have it, we got to have it, <laughs> right? The problem with this is this, is that if you buy a new car and you drive it off the parking lot, 
and you turn right around, you get like you you literally drive you buy a car, you literally drive it down the street and then come back and you say, Hey, I want to sell my car, you automatically lose about 20% of the value because now it's a used car. <laughs> Historically speaking, not not now. So the problem with overpaying for a used car is that its future value is going to be lower. It's going to depreciate over time and it's gonna it's gonna be valued at less money. So the problem for overpaying for something today is that we know that the future value of that is going to be lower. Now, this excludes collectible items. Don't email me talking about, well, a 1969 Barracuda just sold for $150,000. What I, I, collectible cars are different, but they are also subject to, to speculation and psychology and what people are willing to pay for it. Collectibles are different. I'm talking about in general. If you overpay for something today, very high probability the future value of it will be less because of value, real value. So when we take a look at valuations, whether it is market cap to um, GDP or whether it's price to sales or whatever it is, the ultimate forward returns are going to be lower. In fact, you know, if you don't like John Hussman's analysis of it, J.P. Morgan recently did the same thing. They looked at forward PEs. Now, that's forward PEs are based upon earnings growth, right? So we're now assuming that earnings are going to be even higher than they are today based on the current price. So that brings that valuation down. And even using J.P. Morgan's very optimistic forward operating earnings numbers and looking at forward PE, five-year future returns right now are right at zero because of what you're paying for stocks today. And again, this, this isn't surprising. This isn't new or, or anything else. And, and, and again, if we kind of go back in history, we can see this repeated out over time. And there's one truth to all of this. If we take a look at the correlation between valuations of the markets and the, the index itself, there's a very high correlation between the ebbs and the flows of prices and valuations. Not surprising since price is the denominator of the calculation. But what you notice is, is that every time you're at very high levels of valuation, forward returns are a lot lower. And the problem for investors is simply this, is that there are very long periods in time, 1903 to 1927, you made no money. And actually, you could push that out. And at, despite that little two-year peak in the market leading up to 1929 that then crashed, you actually didn't make any money investing from 1900 all the way to the 1950s. But what's incredibly important is that high valuations lead to these lower forward returns. And if no matter how you kind of look at the market, whether it's selling digital pet rocks price to sales, market cap to GDP, valuations and and measures of richness in the market are at a peak. Now, when we come back from the break, I want to explain to you a little bit about valuations and how it relates to the when you invest, not the if you should invest. Be right back after the break. So just for the break, talking a little bit about 
the importance of valuations. Look, we've talked about this before, and, and I know you're like, ah, I know, I've heard it before, Marcus Herbert Value. I know. I get it. But what's important is, is understanding what valuations mean relative to not the if you should invest, right? Now, this is the big thing. Should you invest in the financial markets? Absolutely. Does that mean you have to be invested all the time? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that you only can invest in stocks? No, it doesn't. There's lots of things you can invest in in the financial markets. We get sucked into just buying stocks a lot of times because that's all we hear about on financial media, radio, whatever, right? That's, that's what we talk about, right? We don't really talk that much about bonds because bonds are boring, but bonds can save your butt at the right time. But valuations are important to understand because, again, it's if you go overpay for something today, your valuation is going to be less in the future. As Warren Buffett says, the price that you pay today is the value that you get. And he's right. And there's a very clear correlation, as I said uh, before the break, there's a very clear correlation between high valuations and low forward returns. But this is where you start getting a lot of media nonsense. And, and this, is, this is the thing you have to be really careful of when you hear this stuff, particularly from financial advisors, because you see this a lot from the financial advisory community. They say, well, if you had just invested into the financial markets in the last 25 years, you would have made 12.5% a year. And if you had invested over the last 100 years, you would have made 9.6%. So see, there's no reason to even worry about valuations. Just stick your money into the markets and you're going to make 12.5% a year. Dave Ramsey says this a lot. Just buy a bunch of mutual funds that make 12% a year and you're good. Now, I love Dave Ramsey. Don't get me wrong. Don't get all upset. I'm not bashing Dave Ramsey. I'm just, he's, you know, kind of a big media notoriety type person. And this is something that he says. And it's important to understand the context within what he means. So is the question, should you invest in the markets? Yes. But the real issue is the when do you invest in the markets? And this is, this is the important thing to understand about valuations. So back to our chart here of 12.5% returns over the last 25 years. Let's take that one first and let's just think about it for a second. This is 2021. We're halfway through it. So let's just call it end of 2020, right? So back up 25 years, it's 1995. So I invest in the markets in 1995. I'm right in the middle of the dot-com exuberance, right? That ran from 1990 to 2000. So I'm going to start right in the middle of it. And I'm going to put all my money, I'm going to invest all my capital to work in 1995. At the peak of the market in 2000, that is the last time I will see growth on my money for 13 years. Then from 2013 for the next seven years, I'm going to make a return on my money again. So in other words, out of that 25-year period, I got five years on the front end, seven years on the back end. So 11 out of 25 years, I made a 12.5% rate of return. But I spent a long time going nowhere. Now, here's the important part about this. If I was 25 years ago, 
I was 30 years old, uh, sorry, 40 years old, right? So I'm, I want to retire at 65. I started investing when I'm 40. I didn't retire. I made 12.5% of my money annualized, but I didn't retire. And the reason was because my financial plan was based on me doing what? Making 6% every single year, but I didn't. I made money in the first seven years, first five years, and I made money in the last seven years. I spent 13 years of zero compounding, which means I missed my mark for retirement by a huge amount. So now I'm 65, I'm on the doorstep of retirement, and I'm underfunded. And this is what happens to a lot of people. Now let's go back even further. Let's take the other one. 100 years from today, go back 1920. So I throw all my money into the market, 1920. By the way, I'm a vampire. So I can make it 100 years. <laughs> Did you ever notice that Dracula was always rich? This is why, right? <laughs> he lived for centuries, had plenty of time to compound stuff. Unfortunately, didn't like garlic, but had a long time to live. But going back to 1920, assuming I can live 100 years, I invest in 1920, what do I get? I get 1920 to 1929, awesome. I start out just banging the gong right out of the barrel investing. Perfect timing to invest. What was interesting about 1920 was is that valuations were about five times earnings, not 35 times earnings like they are today. Nonetheless, I make my money till 1929. Now, here's the interesting part about this. And when you go back and actually take, and this is the thing that people don't ever do, right? They never go back and actually look at a chart of the markets from 1920. So in 1920, the S&P index was at $95. <laughs> 4,000 and change today. $95. At the peak of 1929, the market was $489. At Now, Remember, then the market crashes, and we're back to $94 by 1932. In other words, you gave up every bit of your gain. That 1920 to 1929, which was a rocking rate of return, you gave up every penny of it by 1932. And at that point, you spent basically the next 15 years not doing a lot. And again, so, and, and again, we're cherry picking start dates. If you started in 1900, you didn't make money for 50 years because of valuations. So this is the thing. And, and, and again, let's just, again, sidestep the whole part that you don't live a hundred years. Okay. You don't have a hundred years. The important thing to understand about investing, and this is when it comes to your money, is the importance of investing. Yes, should you invest? Absolutely. But the when you start investing is the most important thing. If you start at a level of high valuations, you're going to have poor forward returns. If you're close to retirement and are at high valuations and taking a lot of risk, you're going to pay a very dear price for that. You know, unfortunately for most people, 
me included. Your savings years aren't easy. When you're in your 20s, you're not making much money. When you're in your 30s, you're trying to get your life together and you're doing stupid stuff with your money. Um, then you do things like get married and have kids and have to raise kids and buy a house. There is no savings. When you get into your 40s, you finally get to the point where you're making enough money and things have stabilized enough that you can probably maybe start saving some money. And when you're in your 50s, that's where you have your best chance to really try to sock some money away for most people. This is most people, not everyone. The problem is, is that we don't have 30, 40, 50, 60 years to compound money. We're starting out with a very small sum of money and trying to make it grow. These are our savings. And we're trying to grow our savings. And, and the problem with getting sucked into the financial markets and into the speculative attitude of stocks is that we wind up going for, the, going for the golden ring, right? We're like, I'm all in every hand at a poker table with no regard to the risk that I'm taking until it all blows up. And then we realize what we've done and it doesn't work out well. So my point about this whole thing is when you start talking about you know, the fact that we're seeing people buy pet rocks, digital pet rocks, NFTs for $100,000. It just goes to, to discuss this whole idea of a very rich market and the, and, and the fallacy of these ideas that, oh, if you just stick your money into the markets, you're going to be fine. Because even if markets rally, you're not going to be fine. What you're banking on investing today, if you're banking on getting a 12.5% return today for the next 20 years, you're starting at the second highest level of CAPE valuations ever. And outside of CAPE valuations being the second highest level, everything else is, is at record levels. As, as we said last segment, Price to earn, uh, price to sales ratios, market cap to GDP. No matter how you measure it, you are overpaying for what the market has the ability to return outside of what's happening with just all this liquidity that's being thrown into it. And that's got an end game to it. So this is just, so the point of all this is to be very careful about things that you're told by the financial media and just taking it at face value without really doing some thinking about what it means to you and ultimately your money. So when we come back from the break, we'll wrap up the show. I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between investing and speculation and let you decide what you're doing with your money. Be right back after the break. By the way, all of these charts and graphs that I'm showing you this morning on our live stream. So if you're watching our live stream, we've got a lot of charts and graphs that we've been kind of popping up during the conversation just to try to give you some visuals to along with this. They're actually all located in today's technically speaking post on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And if you haven't been by our website lately, all new redesign, lots of cool stuff there. We've got a lot more stuff coming your way. Um, from being able to do your own financial planning, just a whole lot of whole lot of new tools and gadgets for you as well. But uh, updating a lot of our work. And also make sure you subscribe to our daily commentary. If you go to the homepage, realinvestmentadvice.com, it says 
daily market commentary and there's a button that says get it now and you can read what today's commentary is but then you also subscribe to it we'll send it to you every morning by email uh be out before the market opens kind of give you an update uh as to what's going on for the day um some interesting charts and graphs things to think about so just kind of help you get your morning started with a, a bit of a morning email. So simply just uh, go by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, subscribe to our morning market commentary. We'll send that to you. Um, so just for the break, like I said, all these graphs and things that we're talking about this morning um, in regards to valuations in the technically speaking post, but I, I want to talk about the difference between being an invest investor and a speculator. And this is the thing to think about. So when we come back and, and talk about valuations, and I know it's a boring topic, right? We've talked about valuations before ad nauseum, but the importance of valuations are often overlooked because we're so wrapped up in the moment. You know, markets are going up. There's no downside risk here, super low volatility. I get it, right? Our portfolios are allocated long. I mean, we own stupid stuff in our portfolio because the markets are going up. And I mean, stuff that we own, I look at it and go, these valuations are nuts, but we got to own it because it's got momentum and we have to make gains for our clients. We have that responsibility as portfolio managers. You know, our, our clients, just like you, they've got goals to reach. And so, you know, if I had my dithers, I'd hold a whole lot more cash right now and just wait for a correction to occur whenever it is, right? This year, next year, whenever. That's not a possibility because our clients, just like you, they have to make a return every year on their money in order to reach their financial goals. That's the important thing, but that's the thing we forget. See, we forget about the difference between how much money we need to make versus how much we want to make. You know, when I go to Vegas, I'm trying to make as much money as possible, so I take the most amount of risk. When you're investing, you should be trying to figure out how to make the amount of money you need without taking excess risk. And that's the difference. And in today's markets, most investors are simply just chasing performance, us included. Us included. We're chasing performance right now because... That's what this is. I mean, you can't buy valuations, so we have to chase performance. That's momentum. But this is a function of too much money chasing too few assets. And as we talked about in the first segment, it's, a, it's creating a lack of liquidity in the markets, which is exceedingly dangerous. And eventually, you'll have a very big, fast, rapid correction for whatever reason, and that's the thing I'm trying to warn you about. But chasing momentum is in not investing. It's speculating. I'm betting on there being a greater fool than I to buy my investments from me when I'm ready to sell. And that's the, that's the trick, right? When I'm ready to sell, I'm thinking there's supposed to be a buyer over there willing to buy from me at some astronomical price. But what if there isn't? And that's the problem with the lack of liquidity. Buyers are very much lower in price. Ben Graham, um, of course, wrote the book on securities analysis and value and fundamental investing, et cetera. But Philip Carrot, who most people have never heard of, he wrote The Art of Speculation in 1930. 
He wrote that he believed motive was the test for determining the difference between investment and speculation. Carrot connected the investor to the economics of business and the speculator to the price of speculation. He says it's defined as the purchase or sell of securities or commodities in expectation of profiting by fluctuations in price, not by changes in value. And that's an important differentiator. So when you buy something, when you go to make a purchase of a stock, are you just betting on the price going up or are you buying it because you think that there's true value to the business? Right now, we're all buying stuff just betting on price going higher because nothing really makes sense fundamentally. If you do find a very cheap value-oriented company, it probably is price performance is probably terrible and you don't want to own it. <laughs> That's because you're wanting the price increase right now. You're speculating. So chasing markets, which is what we're all doing again, and so I'm, I don't want you to understand we're doing it too. I'm not chastising you. We're all doing that. We're all in this boat together. We're all speculating. As uh, Warren Buffett once said, we're all naked when the tide goes out, when this occurs. Chasing markets, purest form of speculation. And it's just simply that bet on prices going higher. So back to Graham and Dodd, 1934. An investment operation is one which, upon thorough analysis, promises safety of principle and a satisfactory return. Now, there's the key words. Safety of principle and a satisfactory return. Not phenomenal, not astronomical, not, you know, I've doubled my money overnight. No. A satisfactory rate of return. What is the satisfactory rate of return? It's the rate of return you need to grow your assets, your savings, at a level to meet your financial goals over the long term. 3%, 4%, 5%. And technically, your, ba your, your base rate of satisfactory return is the rate of inflation over time to make sure that your savings, which is what you're investing— your hard-earned savings, the things that you're driving to work for right now to go slave for eight or 10 hours to make, those savings are growing at a rate of inflation to protect their purchasing power parity in the future. But a satisfactory return is the definition of investing. Graham goes on with this statement. The distinction between investment and speculation in common stocks has always been a useful one, and its disappearance is a cause of concern. Now, remember, he wrote this in 1934. We have often said that Wall Street as an institution would be well advised to reinstate this distinction and emphasize it in all its dealings with the public. Imagine that. If Wall Street actually said, I probably wouldn't buy Uber here. <laughs> Otherwise, stock exchanges may someday be blamed for heavy, specula heavy speculative losses, which those who suffered them had not been properly warned against. Now, imagine that 2000, the dot-com crash, 2007, the financial crisis, 1974, the black bear market, 1987, the crash. Nobody ever warned investors about the risk of investing. All they tell you to do is just simply buy more. 
Now we don't even invest. We just simply buy an index and hold on to it. Hold on for the ride. You'll be fine because over 25 years, you're going to make 12.5% rate of return. Forget about that 13 years in the middle where you made nothing. And your money didn't compound and you didn't reach your financial goals because there's a huge difference between average rate of returns and compounded rate of returns. If you're, if you're one of our younger readers, listeners, have never been through a bear market before, you didn't, you, you know, weren't around in the 1999 pop, you didn't start investing until after 2008, and you've never actually been through an actual bear market, I get it. You probably don't believe me. And that's, that's okay. And, and look, I get it, right? We all learn through experience. We've all learned through experience over time. And that experience is a great teacher because what experience teaches us is not to do stuff again. I mean, you know, if you um, are <laughs> riding your bike without a helmet and suffer a, a pretty bad, nasty crash, you kind of learn through experience not to ride your bike without a helmet. Although we did that a lot as kids. <laughs> you know, Things always appear easiest at the top of the market. And that's the thing to remember is that right now, I get it, right? You just throw money in the market and it goes up every day. It's so easy. A caveman can do it. It's, that's the way investing works at tops, right? Investing is and speculation in particular is very easy. You know, this is why, you know, casinos are so successful, Right. They attract you in. They get all the lights going. They get all the, the bells ringing. Right. They, you know, they set the machines to get payouts on a regular basis. They keep you there. They give you free drinks to keep you in the game until the house has all your money. Same thing on Wall Street. If you're not if you're not careful, Wall Street will keep you at the table long enough for Wall Street to have all your money. Samuel Clemens once said, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And that is how we'll wrap up today's show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is out talking specifically about investing, speculation, pet rocks. It's all on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Sign up for our daily market commentary. And of course, get our latest uh, videos, YouTube channel, etc. Find us on Twitter at Lance Roberts. Everything we can do to help you invest better, invest your money better, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll be back here tomorrow. See you then.